Welcome back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here again. You're listening to the China History Podcast, part five this time of our History of Guangzhou series. We made it to the Qing Dynasty last time in the aftermath of the First Opium War, 1839 to 1842. All those hard-fought gains were rammed down the throats of the Manchu Qing rulers by the British, and to a lesser extent, but still guilty as charged, French and Americans, corporate profits, just as important back then as they are today. And a little later on, the city of Guangzhou in post-Treaty of Nanjing times witnessed the incident that generated the spark that led to the Second Opium War. Lin Zexu burning the opium at Humen in early 1839 was all the British needed to come out blasting in the First Opium War. Now, in 1856, came the Arrow Incident. You know how this started. The Guangzhou consul, Harry Parks... It got all bent out of shape when Chinese police boarded a vessel called the Arrow to arrest some Chinese traders dealing in opium. Despite flying a British flag of convenience, the Arrow was not exactly entitled to fly. They were boarded by Qing authorities in Guangzhou, and the Chinese crew was arrested. And the registry for the Arrow that entitled it to British protection had expired. And though they technically were not a British vessel... The powers in Britain, who were not happy with their ill-gotten gains that they glommed off the Chinese in the Treaty of Nanjing, pointed to this dubious incident and restarted military action against China. Now, 1857, when this all reached a good froth, was perfect timing for any foreign power to take that vulture head and sink it into the entrails of the Qing Empire. Here on the eve of the Second Opium War, the Manchu Qing government was desperately trying to tamp down the Taiping Rebellion that had spread like a wildfire all across southern China. And up in the north, the Nian Rebellion was laying waste to Hubei, Henan, Shanxi, Jiangsu, Hebei, and Shandong. Yeah, the Treaty of Nanjing, I guess, wasn't unequal enough. And everything they forgot to demand the first time... Now the British added all these new conditions to the list of indemnities, open ports, rights, and privileges. And besides, how dare these Chinese residents of Guangzhou show so much scorn to the British, roughing them up in the streets and venting their anger at them in all kinds of violent and sometimes lethal ways, and even refusing to trade with them and boycotting their goods. What the British expected in the afterglow of the Treaty of Nanjing... It didn't really turn out as they expected. So the Second Opium War was fought to correct those mistakes. And by December 1857, the British had seized control of Guangzhou. And in an incident that even today sticks in the craw of many a historically-minded Chinese, they nabbed Ye Mingchen, the governor general of Liangguang, who was the top guy in Guangdong and Guangxi, the two Guangs, as they were known for more than a thousand years. They seized him and exiled him to a prison in Calcutta, where he died in 1859. Boy, if they ever tried doing that to Wang Weizhong today, I bet that wouldn't end well. One important thing to notice here is that those Guangzhou residents who had a front row seat to all that was happening in their city forced to watch their toothless officials bow and scrape before these foreign nationals, getting swatted down every time they tried to stand up. They were the first ones who got hit with that feeling of 
helplessness in the face of stronger, but not necessarily better, nations. After all that had been happening in Guangzhou since the 1820s and 30s, many Cantonese were the first in China to get to know these people from the West. And when the acrid smell of revolution starts wafting about in all the treaty ports, it will be especially strong down in Guangzhou. In May of 1858, the British did the one thing the emperor hated more than anything else. They brought the fight to the north and announced themselves by firing on the Daku forts in Tianjin. Let's not linger on the details of the Second Opium War and Lord Elgin, the looting and pillaging, the destruction of the Summer Palace, father and son emperors, Dao Guang and Xianfeng. They both had to deal with the same traumas and outcomes. Emperor Dao Guang only had to open up five treaty ports. Xianfeng had to add six more to that list. And his brother, poor Prince Gong, yeah, he had to be the one to say yeah, yeah, yeah to all these demands for further opening up of the country, no restrictions on the preaching of Christianity, and of course, more indemnities. Like Qi Shan and Yi Shan before him, Prince Gong was pilloried in the court of public opinion for giving in to the imperialists. And whenever gains that were grabbed by one country, well, the others got to have the same thing. Yeah, the last 70 years of the Qing dynasty, even today on my little YouTube channel, which you're all invited to subscribe to, I'll get the occasional outburst directed at these terrible times for China. After the Treaty of Tianjin and Convention of Beijing were signed, sealed, and delivered, the city of Guangzhou sort of climbed into the back seat, and the focus in Chinese history, at least on a political level, moved up north. In Beijing, and of course in Shanghai, and all the treaty port cities. Guangzhou wasn't completely abandoned. It was still the gateway to a large portion of the China market. But if you wanted to sell your opium or your manufacturers to the rest of the China market, well, the economical thing to do was offload your goods closer to where the markets were. All these decades, the traders had been forced to only trade at Guangzhou. Now they were completely liberated. They had all of China now to pretty much do as they please, which was to make money, which... When you grind it down to the nub is the whole point of imperialism and colonialism. Well, Guangzhou residents and people who lived in the towns and villages began to see missionaries from every denomination. Catholics, Baptists, Southern Baptists, Methodists, Wesleyans, Presbyterians. The missionaries had been around since Robert Morrison first arrived in Macau in 1807, but it was nothing like this. The missionaries who came to Guangzhou, at least, really enjoyed a great success. Even today, Christianity, Catholicism, yeah, still going strong there in 2022. In Guangzhou and elsewhere, many missionary societies worked tirelessly to raise the status of women and give them access to opportunities that were unheard of in their traditional society. Catholic and Protestant missions did so much to build schools, offer education to a wider bandwidth of people, and in expanding health care. Mind you, the whole matter of missionaries is something that is fraught with controversy. Because of the circumstances that brought them to China, and because their teachings clashed with the Confucianist beliefs that got baked into the culture after two millennia, not everyone was fond of them. 
Yeah, there was a dark side too, and plenty of lambasting their work as cultural imperialism. But in Guangzhou and all of Guangdong, in fact, missionaries had a rich harvest and spread the good word in all directions. If you recall from that five-part series on the Taiping Rebellion, between that and all the other uprisings, rebellions, and pockets of unrest, there was another massive migration in China. And this time, it wasn't internal from north to south. Instead, Guangzhou, Macau, Hong Kong, Shantou, Xiamen, and Fuzhou, these places became the jumping-off point from which a massive migration of people embarked to ports all over Southeast Asia, Australia, North America, the Caribbean, South America, Europe, in fact, everywhere. Men at first, but women later. They left the bleak prospects at home and tried their luck elsewhere. And Guangzhou played a key role as the main headquarters of all the emigration. There were the Hokkien and Hokju and Fujian and, of course, the Diochus. The Cantonese and the Hoisan, their overseas adventures usually began in Guangzhou or Macau. And so great were their numbers and so spread out did they travel. These Cantonese from all over the Pearl River Delta region, they became the face of China to the world. And their Lingdan culture sort of became the de facto Chinese culture to all the curious but well, mostly ignorant foreigners the world over, getting to see Chinese culture in person for the first time. And when many of these Cantonese people returned to China, with or without the fortunes they sought overseas, they brought all their stories and experiences to Guangzhou. And so the residents of this city, and of the greater Pearl River Delta region, became the first in China to see these foreign powers that were dominating China, in their own natural habitat. And a lot was learned about their government and society. And many Guangzhou people, intellectuals mostly, started having more discussions about how to apply some of those foreign ideas to the Chinese context. As the 20th century dawned, China's attempt to extricate itself from its pitiable predicament was mostly one step forward, two steps back. After doing things a certain way for a couple thousand years, some people found it rather impossible to embrace new ideas, no matter how promising they looked for the country. The Hundred Days Reform Movement, June to September 1898, was looking to be China's most promising campaign to finally make the hard choices that needed to be made. But once this movement, led by Kang Youwei and Liang Qichao and others, failed so spectacularly more and more people began to say the Manchus had to go. They were the problem. And until the end finally came for them in 1912, the anti-Manchu Qing headquarters was in the city of Guangzhou. Kang and Liang, they were both Guangzhou people. Kang was born near Foshan and Liang in Xinhui. And the man who, more than anyone else, symbolized the fight to overthrow the Manchus was Sun Yat-sen a.k.a. Sun Yixian, Sun Wen, Sun Zhongshan. He was born November 12, 1866 in Cui Hung Village, located about halfway between Zhongshan and Zhuhai, about 100 kilometers south of Guangzhou. In the 1880s, Sun left China to live with his elder brother, who resided in Hawaii. 
And here he experienced an immersion course and Western customs and ways, and became a Christian, and later moved to Hong Kong to study Western medicine. Whilst in Hawaii, he also mixed with secret society types and joined one himself. And in 1894, he founded the Revived China Society, the Xinjiang-hui, whose primary goal was the overthrow of the Manchus. In January of that year, 1894, the third plague pandemic broke out and killed over 80,000 people in Guangzhou, and also spread to Hong Kong, where an additional 20,000 or more perished from bubonic plague. And by the winter of 1894, it had already done its worst. The following year, Sun Yat-sen moved to Hong Kong and began doing the two things he was particularly good at, organizing and fundraising. As we'll see, the one thing Sun Yat-sen didn't seem to do too well was to carry out a successful uprising. Time and again, his attempts to stage a local uprising that could light the spark for a national revolution all failed. But it wasn't for lack of trying. His first try at organizing an uprising in Guangzhou was found out, and Sun ended up fleeing the Qing authorities to Japan, then America, and then to London. And perhaps the best thing that ever happened to Sun Yat-sen, career-wise, that is, was when he was detained on October 11, 1896, at the Chinese legation in London and held against his will and threatened with execution. And this story, after it got out, became an international sensation and catapulted Sun Yat-sen to the big time. In the summer of 1897, he went to Japan and continued to earned his stripes as a revolutionary, always active, meeting with fellow like-minded people, organizing resistance and uprisings, raising money to procure arms. About two hours east of Guangzhou is the major city of Huizhou. Once again, Sun was the one behind this planned uprising in October 1900. And like his first attempt in Guangzhou, 1895, this one in Huizhou was quickly put down. August 1905, he formed the Tongmenghui, forerunner to the KMT. He also met Charlie Song around this time. Charlie Song was Sun's biggest and most important financial supporter, and Song's children will later on play no small role in China politics. Turn of the century in China, so much going on. The fallout from the Boxer Rebellion was more of the same, and then some. Bankers, investors, railroad companies, weapons dealers, engineers, and all manners of shysters and scammers descended on China. And starting around 1901, the government finally began taking military reform seriously. Their first attempt at a national army was the Xinjiang, or New Army. This organization would later on morph into the Beiyang Army. And this was all happening in the north of China. And because the revolutionaries like Sun Yat-sen down south didn't have their own military, it's going to profoundly shape the destiny of the country and open the door to the warlordism that followed in the wake of Yuan Shikai's death in June 1916. As the 20th century started to take off, there were basically two main factions in China with two completely different ideas about the best way to move forward. There were the constitutional monarchists led by Kang Youwei and to a lesser extent Liang Qichao, who wasn't so hip on the emperor. 
Their idea was to reform the Qing, not to get rid of him. Then there were the revolutionaries, of which Sun Yat-sen was the most well-known. They wanted to get rid of the Qing and write a new constitution for a Chinese republic, using violence if necessary. Sun's Revolutionary Alliance was made up of a broad range of groups, not all of them respectable. And overwhelmingly, these people who looked to Sun Yat-sen as their leader were mostly from Guangdong province. Many were drawn from the multitude of secret societies, most of which Sun had relations with, himself being a member and all. Sun's bad luck streak continued. Between 1906 and 1908, the Tongmenghui were behind seven failed uprisings across several provinces. Nothing was going particularly well, and though Sun Yat-sen obtained great support and large amounts of cash from overseas Chinese organizations, no one was taking him too seriously in China. Foreigners viewed him as a troublemaker. They were in for a penny, in for a pound with the Qing government in Beijing. They knew who buttered their bread as far as all the infrastructure and weapons contracts went. Whatever Sun Yat-sen's merits were, the foreign powers in China were all lined up with the one institution he was committed to bring down. Without wandering too far out on a tangent, we all know on October 10, 1911, a bomb accidentally went off in Wuchang, Hubei province. And somehow, through a concatenation of events, the Qing dynasty fell. Just like that. Sun Yat-sen read about the Wuchang uprising in a Denver newspaper whilst en route to Kansas City. If you recall from that Homer Lee episode, Sun was on his way to Europe to enlist the support of the British and French. But he left both places empty-handed and arrived in Shanghai on Christmas Day, 1911. By the way, one other milestone in Guangzhou history also happened in 1911. This was the year the Kowloon Canton Railway began service in between the former Crown Colony and the city of Guangzhou. With the KCR, the ride now took less than four hours, station to station. And from 1912 to 1916, Yuan Kai was the man of the hour, controlling events and dreaming his ill-fated dream. Besides Yuan, there were no less than seven foreign predatory powers, all operating in China with their own national and commercial agendas. And we're back. Events in Guangzhou took a back seat as far as all the history and drama unfolding in China during the final years of the dynasty. But on March 20th, 1913, came the assassination of Song Jiaoren and... Whatever hopes there were for the Chinese Republic began to fade quickly. Yuan Shikai began straying from the script, and instead of a republic, what resulted was the warlord era. Between 1917 and 1922, Sun Yat-sen tried to push back against the warlords by creating a rival government down in the south, based in Guangzhou. And this rival southern government made three attempts, all failed to put an end to warlord rule. This period of pushback, led by Sun Yat-sen, was known as the Hufa Yundong, or Constitutional Protection Movement. They sought to protect the constitution that the warlords were making a mockery of. The first try lasted from 1917 to 1920 and came as a result of the 
Pigtail General Zhang Xun's botched attempt to restore the Qing dynasty. After this whole debacle, Sun Yat-sen had rushed down to Guangzhou and began rallying parliament members to give up on the Beijing-based government that was completely under the control of the Beiyang clique warlords. Sun urged members to come down to Guangzhou, where he was establishing this rival government bent on overthrowing warlord control. End August 1917, about 100 parliamentarians answered his call and abandoned the northern government and took their chances with everything Sun Yat-sen was trying to set up. Without any military or weapons to speak of, everything Sun was trying to organize was little more than a pipe dream. And without an army to fight against these Beiyang warlords, nothing was ever going to come of this rival government in Guangzhou. Nonetheless, his actions to assemble a rival government to the north was tantamount to a declaration of war. Sun was made Grand Marshal of this new Guangzhou military government, and given the title of Generalissimo, warlords in Guangxi, Yunnan, and Hunan threw their lot in with Sun for the time being. In November 1917, when Duan Shi Rei led an army to crush this southern rival, he was soundly defeated and forced to retreat from the political scene for a while, not to mention stepped down as the premier of the northern government. But the following year, in January 1918, the Beiyang clique armies led by Cao Kun were able to defeat these constitutional protection forces in Hunan. This led to a truce, and both sides retired to their parts of China to cool off and plan their next moves. Sun knew his military government's weak spot was basically their military. And even though he had these southern warlords behind him, they certainly didn't take any orders from him. In May 1918, after being strong-armed time and again by the Guangxi clique generals, Sun finally had to admit defeat and resigned as generalissimo of the military government based in Guangzhou. This whole rival southern government fell under the control of the Guangxi clique, which ended the first attempt to protect the constitution. Sun Yat-sen, he didn't give up easily, and from January 1921 to June 1922, he teamed up with the Guangdong warlord, Chen Jiongming, to pry the Guangxi clique loose from their tight control of the southern government in Guangzhou. Chen Jiongming's forces were successful in defeating the Guangxi armies and kicking them out of Guangzhou. In April of 1921, the parliament of the southern government dissolved the beleaguered military government and thus ended Sun's role as generalissimo without an army. So Sun Yat-sen, he came under the protection of the local warlord in Guangdong province. As I said, Chen Jiongming. I haven't done an episode on him, but Chen Jiongming was quite a reformer and revolutionary in his own right. He was highly educated, and no friend of the Qing dynasty either. He had been among the founders of the Chinese Assassination Corps that I discussed in that uh, CHP 302 episode on Chinese anarchists. He had worked his way up the Guangzhou and Guangdong political and military hierarchy to become military governor of the province. Though Chen Zhongming took the side of Sun Yat-sen and forced the Guangxi warlords out of Guangdong, these two, Sun and Chen, 
They took opposite sides on the issue of how to carry out the revolution. Sun Yat-sen chose violent upheaval. In his mind, there was no other way. Chen Zhongming wanted to do things more peacefully. His altruistic goal to unify China was to turn Guangdong province politically, socially, and economically into a model for the rest of the country to emulate. Sort of a variation of what Deng Xiaoping would do in 1980 when the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone was created. Guangzhou became the center of KMT organizing, and Sun Yat-sen was at the center of all that, using this base to achieve his objective of national unification. Sun and Chen Zhongming were strange bedfellows from the very start, and it didn't take long for them to start bickering. And this relationship wasn't fated to last long, and in 1922, it was over between these two. May 1922, after two unsuccessful outings with this constitutional protection movement, Sun was aiming to be third-time lucky and called for a northern expedition to unify China. Nothing came of it, but this notion of a northern expedition did have staying power, and it would take until 1927 to see it happen. But the idea was still premature and never gained traction, and it was chalked up as yet another loss for Sun Yat-sen. He wasn't getting anywhere, and still, no one among the foreign powers was willing to support him. That would have been bad for business. So carrying all this baggage and mounds of disappointments and doors closed in his face, this was when Sun Yat-sen left Guangzhou and went up to Shanghai and began his talks with Adolf Jaffe of the Comintern. And this led to the 1923 Sun Jaffe Manifesto and all the tortured and difficult history that grew out of this ill-fated relationship. No one in the West was beating a path to Sun Yat-sen's door to offer support, so we got this instead. Once the Soviets had insinuated themselves into China's internal affairs, the whole United Front charade began to play itself out. As you all know, later this year, in 2022, will be the 20th National Congress of the CCP. Well, in 1923, with things being the way they were, communists and nationalists burying the dagger, the CCP held its party congress in Guangzhou. This was the third party congress, June 12th to June 20th. They held it at 31 Shuguyuan Road, right in the center of the historic Yueshou district, where most of Guangzhou history seemed to play out. Chen Duxiu hosted this third-party congress. Li Dazhao was there. So was Zhang Guotao. Mao, of course, was there. He gave a report on the success he was having organizing workers up in Hunan. He still had 26 years to go before he'd stand on the podium at Tiananmen and declare that China had stood up. The main topic on the agenda was what to do about this whole new joining together with their nationalist rivals. Maring was also in attendance to tell them what to do. This Nederlander was also known as Hank Snaefleet. He represented the Comintern, and his mission was to raise this helpless, infant political party that Stalin was banking on to one day seize control of China. The most important thing Sun Yat-sen wanted from this new relationship was support in creating an actual military that could fight back against the warlords. 
Sun knew he had to have this. He had hoped Chen Zhongming was the guy. But in the end, Chen thought like a warlord and knew the time wasn't right to dream such big dreams. And since no one in the West was lining up to support his efforts, Sun Yat-sen inadvertently set the course of history in motion with his most fateful decision to let Stalin inside his tent. The history of Guangzhou becomes more prominent beginning in 1924 with the establishment of the Wampoa Military Academy, located 10 miles downriver from Guangzhou. Built with Soviet aid, Wampoa was going to be the mechanism that Sun and his supporters planned to use to take down all the warlords and unify the government under KMT rule. Michael Borodin, on behalf of the Soviets, served as the first puppet master in Guangzhou, directing the course of events. And this is where Jiang Kai-shek gets his first big break, being named commandant of the academy, with Zhou Enlai acting in the role of head of the political department. But this micron's thick veneer of cooperation between the communists, other leftists, and the nationalists changed drastically on March 12, 1925, with the death of Sun Yat-sen. He only lived to 58 years old. Historians today are often quite harsh with this oft-called father of modern China. He certainly didn't have many victories or achievements to speak of, but no one had his prestige and international name recognition. So with his sudden passing at such a key moment in Chinese history, what we ended up getting instead was Chiang Kai-shek. Following the May 30th incident in Shanghai in 1925, one of the many things that followed was the Guangzhou-Hong Kong strike, June 1925 to October 1926, when those Chinese demonstrators were fired upon in the Shanghai International Settlement. It set in motion all kinds of events directed against the foreign communities. Besides this long-lasting and devastating strike of 1925-26 that brought commerce almost to a standstill in Guangzhou and Hong Kong, there was also the lesser-known Shaji Massacre of June 23, 1925. Today, along the Pearl River waterfront on Yanjiang West Road, where the Renmin Bridge is, there is a memorial to remember this event. Over 100,000 people gathered to protest this event that had just happened up in Shanghai and to vent their outrage. Fearing for their lives, just as that Sikh detachment from the Shanghai Municipal Police a couple days earlier, British and French forces, aided by the Portuguese as well, facing an angry mob, opened fire on the protesters in Shaji, opposite Shamian Island, where so much of the tortured history of Guangzhou took place going back to the 1830s. Fifty or more people were killed as they protested the unequal treaties and the presence of foreigners in China and all their special privileges and the sense of entitlement that went along with that. The Guangzhou military government demanded a formal apology from the foreigners, but got nothing. And then a strike started in earnest. And the damage done to the economic interests of Britain and others in the wake of the strike was devastating. The focus was mostly in Hong Kong, but trade and services ground to a halt in Guangzhou as well. It took a year of negotiating to settle this event that served as yet another brick in the wall of the history of Guangzhou in the early Republican period. Borodin and his 
Comintern agents continued to do a first-rate job stirring up the masses in Guangzhou, making it hard on the Europeans and Americans. Not much has changed in a hundred years. The whole mood down in Guangzhou, compared to what was happening elsewhere in China, was decidedly beginning to lean to the left. In fact, so leftward-leaning were things becoming in Guangzhou, it provided plenty of incentive for businesses to pack up and leave in droves in the direction of the more capitalism-friendly Shanghai and other cities in the lower Yangtze region. March 20th, 1926, came the Zhongshan gunboat incident, also known as the Canton Coup, and the March 20th incident, another major event in Guangzhou history. It was Sun Yat-sen who had let the CCP and the Comintern in the front door and allowed them to engage in their activities, protected by the banner of the First United Front. And so successful was the CCP in secretly undermining the efforts of their political rivals in the KMT. Finally, Jiang Kai-shek made the fateful decision to once and for all get rid of them. Now, we know he never gets rid of them, but it wasn't for lack of trying, and the Canton coup was the first attempt. KMT politics became a nest of vipers following Sun Yat-sen's death, and not everyone was keen on Jiang Kai-shek. In modern history, Jiang has been roundly criticized for his many failures that ultimately resulted in the victory of the communists in 1949 and sowing the seeds for the current Taiwan problem we still face in 2022. But when it came to self-preservation and hanging on to military and political power in his own party, Jiang was second to none. Following a number of very suspicious activities carried out by communists in Guangzhou directed against Jiang, he took preemptive action and declared martial law on March 20th, this is 1926, a whole slew of communist and Leftist leaders and sympathizers were rounded up and expelled from the government that they had been slowly and methodically trying to undermine since day one. Zhou Enlai left Guangzhou and headed up to Shanghai to continue his work in organizing workers up there. As for Jiang and the Soviets, he wasn't ready to cut the cord with Borodin just yet. With no assistance or support from anyone else of consequence, Jiang still needed to maintain the facade of Cooperation with the Comintern, if he was ever to build an army to take on the warlords, still living large and blocking China's rise in their own selfish ways. For the rest of 1926, Jiang and his closest allies remained in Guangzhou, planning for what became known as the Northern Expedition. But before Jiang launched this historic mission, he carried out the Shanghai Massacre, April 12, 1927. No need to pretend to tolerate the CCP anymore. What was suspected at the outset of the First United Front was no longer an open secret. There would be no further need to pay lip service to this United Front farce. Guangzhou saw some action in December of 1927 when CCP stalwart Chu Chou Bai led an insurrection known as the Second Guangzhou Uprising. The first one in 1895, after the Hundred Days Reform ended with an exclamation point. Despite the failure of the Second Guangzhou Uprising quickly being crushed, it was a major historic event nonetheless. This Second Guangzhou Uprising was all Stalin's idea. It didn't go too well. He called for the CCP, ready or not, to stage an uprising down there. 
So on December 11th, they rose up and attacked government offices, businesses, police stations, and other major buildings. A Guangzhou Soviet was quickly established and was meant to provide all the leadership and support for everyone rising up against the nationalists. What followed was a bloody counterattack that made fast work of the CCP and leftist insurgents. The streets of Guangzhou ran awash with blood with the murder of not only men, but women and children, too. In all, as many as 5,700 people lost their lives, most of them quite violently. That the Soviets were behind this whole botched uprising was well known. This marked the end of their involvement in nationalist affairs, and it also marked the end of the worst year ever for the Chinese communists since their founding in July 1921. After all the blowback from the Shanghai Massacre sidelined Chiang Kai-shek in the aftermath of the Guangzhou uprising, it cleared the way for his return to the head of the nationalist government. Over the course of 1928, the Northern Expedition finished off the job of neutralizing the warlords, though for the most part all they did was prolong their longevity by throwing their lot in with Jiang, who they all thought was just another one of them. The Guangzhou uprising didn't help build confidence among the foreign merchants based there, and they continued to vote with their feet and joined all those who had long abandoned the city for Shanghai. And with that, I'm going to put the old bookmark in, and we could pick up next time to see how the city of Guangzhou fares during the upheavals of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. So I hope you'll consider coming back for part six. I'm not going to say for sure. You never know with me, but... I think we'll be able to close the curtain on this series. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from somewhere in West L.A. in the thirsty state of California. Do think about coming back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.